I think 2020 qualifies as what we could call troubled times. Troubled times draw out in us a longing for assurance. A longing to know that things are going to be okay. A longing to know that things are going to be okay for me. I want to know, uh, well, if I'm being real honest, I want to know that I'm going to win or that I'm going to be on the winning side. I want to know that I'll be on the right side of history. There, there really is a deep-seated, so deep-seated, sometimes we don't recognize it for what it is, but a deep-seated fear that somehow I will be left outside and put to shame, seen as not good enough to be allowed in with those who are accepted. Perhaps you feel the tug to gather people around you who agree with you about certain things um, in order to sort of scratch that itch of longing to know that, that you're, you're on the right side, that you're okay, that it's going to be okay for you. John draws that kind of distinction, a distinction between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside, and actually tells us how to see. And his way of doing it is very different from the way of making that distinction between insiders and outsiders that comes so naturally to our world and, as a result, comes so naturally to us. John tells us how to know the members of the true family from the members of the family of the enemy. He says, Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. It's as simple as that, right? And that is simple, and it is true. And if we're paying attention to what he says and to what he's been saying, it's going to draw out questions for us once again. Like, when you say righteousness here, John, what, what do you mean by righteousness? What do you mean by practicing righteousness? How do we look for that in the right way in order to make the right kinds of distinctions between who's in the family of God and who's not? What do you mean by sin here? How do we watch for it in the right way? What do you mean by verse 10 of what you already wrote when you say that if anybody says he, he has no sin, then he's a liar and the truth isn't in him? Meaning that anybody who is in the truth, anybody who is in Jesus, has to acknowledge that they have sin as some kind of reality in their lives. How does that fit with the fact that you say whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Those are all the good kinds of questions that John keeps drawing out in us. He isn't being simplistic, but he is being clear about one thing especially. There are two kinds of children, only two. And there is a way to tell the difference. And in this morning's passage, John tells us how. He tells us how, big picture, what marks 
the children of God and what marks the children of the devil. It tells us that in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. The word that very closely matches a situation that we see Jesus in in John 8, in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John, there was a community of people who had gathered around Jesus that was in many ways like the community of people that John's readers had been a part of. And even as they believed in him, in some sense, the question remained as to whether they would trust him for everything that he was, as to whether they would truly acknowledge, confess, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's really the, the question that's at stake in John's first letter. That question begins to be answered right after we're told that many believed in him because Jesus knows how to draw out the answer to that question. Are you going to confess that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God? He starts doing that in verse 31 of John 8. So, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word you and the truth will set you free. And it's at that word, that very next word, that the divide begins to happen. The divide starts when he says, you are in bondage and you need to be rescued. And immediately to the people who are, who are deciding whether to actually follow him, you say that you have a right to these good things because you're children of Abraham. And the right that you claim, the descent from Abraham that you have is strictly physical. If you were true heirs of the promises of God to Abraham, then you would behave like Abraham did. You would behave like God's children. God's children are the ones who receive what God promises, and God's children behave like his children. And from this point on, you're behaving the opposite of God's children. Because here you are standing, listening to the person who looks more like a son of God than anybody you've ever seen, and you are choosing to edit him at will. And you're saying, we're not going to listen to you. 
when it comes to a question of, of life and death, we're going to make our own choice. And that has been the enemy's strategy from the very beginning. <clears throat> the enemy, when he comes to the original children of God, begins to question God, and he's willing to sort of banter about rules in Genesis 3 until the question of life and death arises. And then he goes straight for the throat. Eve says, God told us not to eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, lest we die. And it's at that point that the enemy says, no way. Don't listen to him. No, you won't. God is lying. Take what's yours and be free. Those who live out that attitude, take what's yours and be free, are not children of God. And that attitude, that attitude that is not the attitude of children of God, inevitably shows up in something beyond words, shows up in action. And that's what shows up at the very end of John 8 in people's response to Jesus. This cannot merely be a philosophical debate So in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That attitude that says, I'm I'm, I'm going to take what's mine and be free, that rebellious attitude is what's really at stake in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. That becomes clear, especially in verse 4. So I want to take this passage in two parts. I want to look at verse 4 first, because I think it serves as the introduction to the rest of the whole passage. Then I want to look at verses 5 through 10, which is a two-part parallel section. I'll try to show you how that works. If we start with verse 4, then we're going to be able to follow verses 5 through 10 to where it's taking us. And I want to point out first where verses 5 through 10 are going to be taking us. It's going to be taking us to two sides of the same coin. The first side of the coin is don't play around with rebellion. The second side of the coin is expect and acknowledge righteousness. Don't toy around with rebellion. Expect and acknowledge righteousness. Those things are both true for God's people, and I'll describe what I mean by them. First, in order to get us there, we need to take a look at verse 4 and what it is that John means by it. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We want to be attentive when we read John, in 1 John in particular. We we want to pay special attention to subtle or very strong shifts in language. John uses some of the same words over and over again. You hear that when you read him. And so if you come to a point in 1 John where you hear him use a word that he doesn't use anywhere else, then you want to pay close attention there. He's, he's, he's drawing our attention to something that's new. And that's what he does here. And he's used the word sin multiple times. 
But the term he uses for lawlessness, he only uses in this verse, and he uses it twice. He only uses it in chapter 3, verse 4. And I think he uses it in a very specific way. The way that it's used in the rest of the Bible and the way that it appears to be used in context is not just to refer to sin in general. It's not just to refer to a general failure to obey. It's referring to a conscious, ongoing response to God that hears what he says and says, no, I'm going to take what's mine and be free. Another way of describing it, perhaps a way of even translating it to get at the point of what John is after, is the word rebellion. A choice that hears what God says and responds with, no, I don't care. My way is better. That kind of choice, that kind of response to God when he speaks, inescapably expresses itself in the way that we respond to Jesus himself. Not only in response to the things that God tells us elsewhere, but especially to the place where God's word is embodied and fulfilled for us in Jesus An attitude of lawlessness or rebellion, as John refers to it here, ultimately says, I don't need Jesus. Just like those who followed him for a while. And that that question of whether we're going to confess and receive and trust Jesus as he is, as the Christ, the Son of God, who came to rescue us from sin, That question of whether we're going to receive Jesus that way is the central concern in John's letter. I think it's the central concern in this passage. As John draws a distinction between sin and righteousness, that is what is mainly at stake. Confession, in the end, is inseparable from action, just like it was in John 8.59, When people begin to say no to Jesus and end up trying to stone him. So, where then is John going to take us in verses 5 through 10? As he unpacks this this picture of the distinction between the kind of righteousness that characterizes God's children and the kind of open rebellion that characterizes those who are not his children. I think the point is going to be, as I mentioned, first, don't toy around with rebellion. Don't leave any room for choosing to say no to Jesus. I'm not really referring to the struggle with sin that's ongoing for all of that, for all of us. There's going to be promise for that in Christ, in this passage, really referring more to an an attitude that says to Jesus really one of two main things. No, I don't need you to save me. Or, maybe this is more relevant for those who claim Christ, or no, I don't need you to lead me. I don't need you to be my Savior, or I don't need you to be my Lord. I'm going to let you be my Lord in certain areas, but there are some areas in which I say, this is off limits. 
This is mine. I don't care what you say about this area of my life. It's mine. And if I get to make the final choice about that, it means that there is only one Lord, and that's me. That kind of ongoing conscious rebellion against Christ is, I think, what John is going to refer to at the very end of his letter when he talks about the sin that leads to death. Because it's impossible to rebel against someone and also trust him. This this concern for saying, in the end, I'm going to choose my own way, regardless of what I hear you clearly say, in the end, this is something that's really relevant for our culture because it's really common for someone to claim and assume that they have a relationship with God simply because they want one and think they deserve it. And without any reference to the question of whether God's word has authority in their life. You might even hear this expressed by somebody saying something like, it doesn't really matter how I live, it's God's job to forgive me. I've actually heard people say that almost verbatim. Even people who go to church regularly, who in the end say, no, I'm in charge of the decisions that I make. God is not, Christ is not. We, we want to watch for our response to Christ's authority as well when new things are revealed to us, even those of us who claim Christ, who are not walking in open rebellion, who even as we struggle, choose to say, yes, because we're still in progress, there are going to be things that get revealed to us that are not in keeping with God's character that we didn't know about before. And we want to be very careful when that happens. To say, I didn't know about this. This is rattling and jarring to me. But I am God's child. And by his grace, I will seek obedience. As new things are revealed to me, I'm I'm not going to say no to Christ. I belong to him. Now, that actually brings us to the good news side of the coin. There is a warning against something dangerous, and there is a watching for something good in God's children. Don't toy around with rebellion on the one side and expect and acknowledge righteousness on the other side. There are those who actually are God's children. And among those who are, God is actually doing his work. His spirit is at work. He has given us his nature, and new things are and should be happening. So John is actually writing to those that he assumes are the children of God. And his main point is to steady them by the reminder that they really do have life in Christ. One of the ways for them to receive that steadiness is for them to watch and to see that the righteousness of God actually, actually is at work in them. He expects that as children of God, they are doing righteousness as a result of their trust in Christ, especially 
that they're loving one another. Imperfectly, but actually. To use a phrase from Richard Sibbs in in his book, A Bruised Read, which I would recommend as a, uh, a slow read for anyone, to use his phrase, a spark of fire is fire. It's really there in every single one of God's, God's children. And John would say it is discernible. It's seeable. It's there and you can watch it. So he says, don't toy around with rebellion. Expect and acknowledge righteousness. And in order to take us there, he's going to tell us three big things in verses 5 through 10. Three big things. First, the Son of God came to rescue rebellious children. The Son of God came to rescue rebellious children. Second, no one who continues in rebellion has been rescued. Third, simply, children look like their father. You look at them and you can see the nature of their father in them. He's going to say that the Son of God came to rescue rebellious children. No one who continues in rebellion has been rescued, and children look like their father. He's going to say that in verse 5 through the beginning of verse 8. And then in the end of verse 8 through verse 10, he's going to say the same things in the same order. The Son of God came to rescue rebellious children. No one who continues in rebellion has been rescued, and children look like their father. Why am I repeating myself? Well, because John repeats himself. He does that because he's not only building a linear argument, he's working to drive home an impression. He wants his hearers to hear these things so that they're brought to the point where they say, I will not toy with rebellion, and I'm going to watch for and expect righteousness. So, uh, what I'm going to do then is, because I think John lays these three points out, In two parallel sections, I'm going to take those sections side by side. So it's really in verse 5 and the beginning of verse 8 that he says, The Son of God came to rescue rebellious children. He says, You know why he appeared. He says that in both verse 5 and verse 8. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The work of the devil is to say, take what's yours and be free. And that offer never delivers. It always delivers the opposite. It enslaves and it kills. And Jesus came to destroy that work, to take away sin You can't rightly confess that Jesus is Savior without confessing that you need one. That's what John has gotten at very early in the letter. We say we have no sin. We make him a liar. That that problem of not wanting to confess our sin for uh, our, our need for a Savior as humans seems to be the primary obstacle in people confessing Jesus as he is. But are you? Are you you confessing in your heart and to one another 
your need for him to forgive you and your need to cleanse your life. That's, that's the main pattern that I see here at grace. We struggle, we wrestle, we confess, we acknowledge, we continue to respond as we hear Jesus with his word, rescue us from our sin, continue to respond with yes. I think that's the general pattern of those that John was writing to. I think it's the general pattern here, and I want you to be encouraged by it. So when you see something in yourself, and it won't take that long, something in yourself that's out of line with the character of God, let verse 5 and verse 8 remind you that Jesus came for you. Don't let it rattle you out of your, 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 your real comfort, your steadiness that you do have life in Jesus, because if you are confessing your need for him, you can know that he appeared for such a one as you, for you and for me. He came to take away your sin, to destroy the works of the devil that are aiming at destroying you. It is for you. Second, in, in verses 6 and 9, we see this drawn out that, that no one who continues in rebellion actually has been rescued. Again, his, his main purpose is not to make his readers question whether they are in Christ. And at the same time, there is in his description in verse 6 and 9, there's, there's a warning. There's a warning for anybody who's reading. Uh, there's always the possibility that there are those remaining in, among John's readers who are still on the fence, who are still deciding whether they're really going to follow Jesus as he really is. And there's that same reality in every church, including in ours. And so we do want to be attentive to this warning. In verse 6 and verse 9, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. In other words, no one who abides in Jesus, who has really seen him, who has really known him, goes on in an attitude that says, my life is my own, regardless of what you say, I'm going to get what's mine. No one, verse 9, born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So it's worth just stopping here to ask that hard question. It may well be a life-giving question for someone. Are there ways, are there ways for you in which you are harboring sin that you know about? It's worth considering. I don't think it's inevitable for a Christian at all, but it is worth asking, are there ways in which you're harboring sin that you know about? Doing that is an antichrist attitude. That's the term that John has used just in a previous passage. That idea that, no, I know what God says about this, I don't care. That idea cannot survive in any true Christian. If that's where you find yourself, and you're still here, 
so is he. He's still here as the propitiation for your sins. He is still here as an advocate who will give you forgiveness upon your confession. Your confession that doesn't simply say, yeah, I do that, I admit it. A confession that says the same thing Jesus says about it. A confession that says, my way is not better. Your way is better. I am going to trust you. With this, with, with this area of my life that I've been holding on to for life, that will never deliver. I'm handing it over to you. The struggle, upon confession, the struggle won't necessarily end today. But the rebellion can. Rebellion is the work of the devil. It's a relational rebellion. It's the kind that says, I don't trust what you say and I don't need you. So what do you do if you recognize this kind of rebellion in yourself? Well, you bring it to Christ. You come to him as he is. It is a, that rebellion is a response to God that is used by the devil that the Son of God came to destroy. And he can. He can break the rebellion. The Son of God came to rescue rebellious children and to turn them into righteous children. Children in whom the righteousness of God is actually seeable. And that's the other side of the coin. Even in verses 6 and 9, there is a warning about rebellion. And there's a call to watch for righteousness. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You find sin in yourself? It's painful if you're a child of God. Do you, is it fair to describe your response to sin when you see it as, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. I, I, I can't necessarily see my way clearly out of it, but I can't do this. <clears throat> That's good news. There's a reason you have that response in yourself. I can't do this. It's because God's seed abides in you. It's because he's made you his child. There may well be a reference to the Spirit of God living in you, uh, making you, giving you the spirit of sonship here that causes you to respond and say, I, I can't, I can't do this. We need to take hold of that just as much as we need to be warned about rebellion. Richard Sibbs, once again, urges believers, especially rattled believers, and he says, we, we, we need to not trust false evidence to say things like, well, I'm, I'm part of the church, I've, I've prayed this prayer, I've gone through this, um, this process, and so therefore I must be a child of God. He call that false evidence. At the same time, he would say to the bruised reed, we also must not deny true evidence. For so we should dishonor the work of God's Spirit in us and lose the help of that evidence which would cherish our love to Christ and arm us against Satan's discouragements. Some are as faulty in this way as if they had been hired by Satan, the accuser of the brethren, to plead for him 
in accusing themselves. Do you, do you look at yourself and, and say, look at all the garbage in myself. All the good stuff must be counterfeit. Not everybody's prone to do that, but some people really are. And I just want to urge you to say, don't deny the work of God that is actually happening in yourself. Leave enough room to see that he is actually working in you. Enough room to say, you know what? These good things that I'm afraid are counterfeit, they actually, they actually could not show up simply on my own efforts. They must come from somewhere else. They must come from God. It follows from all this that if you if you are a Christian, and some of us need to be reminded of this as well, there is no sin that you're just plain stuck with. You may, you may be stuck with the struggle but you're not stuck with where you are right now. No, there's no area where being more like your father is impossible. Progress toward victory and freedom is yours. Jesus deserves it for you. He came to destroy the works of the devil, and he can do it even more in you today. If you're struggling with this, one thing that I would encourage you to do is to not do it alone. We're in this together. So look for someone else who knows that Jesus is both advocate and propitiation and who will respond to what you're struggling with in light of that truth. The Son of God came to rescue rebellious children. No one who continues in rebellion has been rescued. And then in verses 7 and 8 and in verse 10, we see children look like their father. We, we don't simply have to guess. It's, it's not so simplistic that we can just draw 10-second conclusions about it. It's not as if, as if a child of God has some easily visible mark that we can look at and say, I know who that person is. And at the same time, if somebody verbally denies the son that the father approves, it's very clear. Somebody who says, no, Jesus isn't the Christ. Well, that's, that's clear enough. But what if somebody verbally says some of the right things, but actively denies the son? John says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Restored rebels will show that they belong by being like their father. What does that mean? Well, in John, in 1 John, it means almost exactly the same thing as saying that restored rebels will show that they belong by loving like their father. When John gets down to the specifics of what righteousness in action means, repeatedly, what he refers to is love. And especially in this letter, 
loving one another. That's, that's a really relevant thing for us to watch for now. Now notice he's not telling them what to do yet. He's telling them that what you do comes from who you are. And if you are a child of God, then you will love one another. That's at the end of verse 10. That's really relevant for us today because we live, like I said, in a troubled time. And that trouble has a tendency to shake our, our sort of natural affections for one another. And it can be easy to uh, look at one another and say, how do I love someone who's so screwed up about fill in the blank? Or how do I love someone who's convinced that I'm so screwed up about fill in the blank? And we might respond with, well, you'd better love them if you want to be a child of God. That's not what John says. That's not the order that he goes in. John puts it in an entirely different order. It's not loving that makes you a child of God. It's being a child of God that makes you love. And it's God's love that made you his child. So that's where we need to start. Remember chapter 3, verse 1? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So if you look at yourself and you think, I do, I do love my brothers, my sisters, and I I don't see as much of it as I want to see. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Remember the spring, not this past spring. Remember the spring from which all this love flows. Remember the spring. Remember where love is found, where its source is. The spring of love is not in us as if we say, I have to start it there in order to be a child of God. It's been started for me, and it is a never-ending spring. It's a spring that will never run out of love for me. So I turn around and I find my brother, I find my sister, and I say, I'm, I'm going, I'm going, Jesus himself is the one who gave me the new command to love you. And I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to do it in action. I'm not going to just say it. I'm going to do it as best I can in deed and in truth. I'm going to pour myself out because I know that there is a spring behind me, underneath me, that is for me, that will never run out for me. I never have to feel like I'm going to pour out love and be left empty. Because God doesn't love in word only. He doesn't love me in word only. He loves in deed and truth. And he will continue to care for me well. Richard Sibbs describes this as well. He, he says, And shall there be more mercy in the stream than in the spring? Shall we think there is more mercy in ourselves than in God who plants the affection of mercy in us? The only way for us to fully experience the love of God for us as his children, that we can also look at and say, I see it. I see the righteousness of God embodied in the love of God actually flow through me to someone else. The only way that we can fully experience the love of God for us is by extending it to others 
And as we extend it to others, we have the opportunity to see something that could not possibly have come from us. So in a sense, there is a call to action here, but it's a call to action that already exists inside of you if you're God's child. A call that says, your father loves his children. Your father loves you. Your father loves your brother and your sister. And that love is intended to flow through you to others. When it does, be encouraged by it. Watch it. Make note of it. Say, it's there. It's true. I'm his child, not because I've deserved it, but because Jesus has deserved it for me. Jesus came to rescue people from the rebellion and its results. You can tell, if you look in the right places, who has truly been rescued. The difference in the end is those who say to Jesus, we have no use for you, and those who say to Jesus, we have no life without you. In the end, that will show up in life and in love. Father, when we deal with the rich truths of your word, sometimes they can take some time to digest. So I pray for myself, for your people here, that those of us who need to pay special attention to the concern of harboring rebellion would pay the kind of attention that would, that would draw them to Christ, that they would find life in him. And I pray that for your true children, that you would give them eyes to see the ways in which your righteousness is actually at work in them. I pray that all of us would take on the opportunity this week to be channels of the stream of your love in such a way that we would be able more and more fully to say, the life of Jesus is in me and I'm safe in him. May your spirit do this work in us this week. In Jesus' name.